all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Welcome back to episode eight of Professionally Embarrassing. We have got a lot lined up today, including a step-parent adoption case from me and what have you got for us Malvika? I have a very controversial case one that will spark lots of opinion I'm sure about contact between children and a parent in prison so that's what I've got lined up. Apologies first of all to listeners if we do not sound on form today we're filming on a Saturday morning for the first time and that was a mistake and we will never do that again. Weekdays are king. So I'm going to kick us off with my case, which is the case of Riel, brackets, a child step-parent adoption. And it is about a boy called, well, referred to as L in the judgment, who's 11. And he lives with his mother. And his mother, according to <laughs> Lady Justice King, had a somewhat chaotic and hedonistic lifestyle in her late teens and early 20s, of which she now feels embarrassed and ashamed. During that time, mum gave birth to Elle and found formed a new relationship immediately with someone else who was not Elle's father. Um, she very much had wished that the person that she'd formed the relationship with had been Elle's father. And so his real father was never registered as his father or given parental responsibility. Mum went on to have another child with the man that she did form a relationship with, Mr B. And her, Mr B and Elle lived together for three years before the actual father of L um, discovered that he existed and asked for a DNA test and having had the DNA test through the courts confirmed he was in fact L's biological father and therefore the father came back into the life of the mother and it looks like they rekindled their relationship for a period of time or, or the father came back into the mother's life as it were and he then made an application for a child arrangements order to spend time with L when he was about four years old. The contact order was made in his favour, the father, and by that time the parents' relationship had again ended. Mother was also separated from Mr B by the stage who was um, Elle's sister's father. And the contact was made. The contact did never really go very well. Um, Elle found the contact quite unsettling. And in fact, it never really progressed beyond short periods of time together. And it was described by social services who had in and out involvement as um, aggressive and harsh parenting on behalf of the father. But he was granted parental responsibility and he did have somewhat regular contact with the child um, for a period of time. During the course of 2015 and onwards, the mother met the person who was going on to be known as the stepfather. So um, not Elle's father, not Mr B, but a third person who she forms a relationship with in 2015 and who she is still together with now. They live together and have a third child um, who was born in 2017. They are intending to marry, but because of COVID, they have not yet married. Contact continued between Elle and his father during this whole time, while mother is in this new relationship with the stepfather and has, has a sibling. But there were some, well, there was overwhelming evidence by the stage that contact was not progressing well. And in the summer of 2016, Elle essentially ceased contact with his father who stopped making contact with him for his birthday and for Christmas and had no further contact with him for a very long period of time to the point where I think it was 19 weeks after the order was made that he should spend time with him and there was no contact between the two of them. Um, he showed up at Elle's school and started just exhibiting aggressive and scary behaviour and um, that was a period where Elle made the decision that he no longer wanted to spend time with his dad and in fact said to his mother that he did not want to spend any more time with his father. He's now not seen his father L since September of 2016 so some five years ago nearly and since the proceedings have been issued for the stepfather to adopt L, 
The father has made no effort to see him or enforce the contact order and has essentially just given up on contact with his son. It's obviously very, very sad that that happened and that neither Elle nor his father are enjoying a relationship together. But Elle has always seen the stepfather as his psychological father. And in fact, they because they've been together since 2015, Elle has been, um, was six and has been raised by his stepfather since he was six for a very long and stable period of time. He has said to the Guardian in the case, dealing with the application for adoption, that whilst his birth father is still officially his father, if the adoption is granted, then the stepfather would officially be my dad and would have all the roles of my dad and that would make me happy. So he's obviously aware that the stepfather is not his father. Nonetheless, um, he would be happy if the stepfather were to become his legal father and would wish to be legally joined to the family. So that's the backdrop against which obviously the application for an adoption is made. The stepfather seeks to adopt Elle on the basis that he's in a stable relationship with his mother and he would like to be his legal father because of the problems that he's had with his biological father and the problems that contact has entailed and the fact that it's very unlikely that there will be any further contact between them at all because of Elle's expressed wishes and because of the father's lack of engagement with those proceedings. So an application is made for the stepfather to adopt Elle and the adoption is granted by the circuit judge and the father, the biological father, obviously appeals. And so it comes before the Court of Appeal for consideration to consider whether the adoption should have been made, whether it was right for it to have been made. And what we see in this case is the court being very clear about the difference between an adoption by a step-parent and a what's called a non-consensual adoption within the context of care proceedings. So we know that in care proceedings, if a child is going to be adopted away from their birth family by essentially strangers, people who they don't know and, and the parents don't know, then there is a very high test. It's the test of nothing else will do from 3B. And it's very clear from all of the jurisprudence around those cases that it has to be the case that any adoption by strangers is the absolute biggest infringement by the state on a person's right to a private family life and therefore has to be considered extremely carefully and is at the extreme end of interference by the courts into people's lives. However, what the court says and what a lot of jurisprudence around this area says is that a step-parent adoption is different. There is a distinction to be drawn between adoption in the context of compulsory permanent placement outside of the family against the wishes of the parents and step-parent adoption, where by definition the child is remaining within the care of one or other of his parents and is in fact legalising an existing relationship. And so this is a very interesting case for that distinction in relation to the extreme end of the spectrum of non-consensual stranger adoption and the other end of the spectrum, which is a step-parent legalising a relationship that emotionally and psychologically they already feel. So Lady Justice King sets out the jurisprudence of Soderback of Sweden, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, about adoption by step-parents. And she says that the fully opposed public law stranger adoption at one extreme is contrasted to an adoption within the child's existing de facto family unit, which is made with the consent of both parents at the other end. Obviously, this is a case where one parent does not consent to the adoption because the father does not wish for his son to be adopted by the stepfather. The court says that in summary, the combination of Soderbach and Sweden and a case called Re-P, which came out in 2014, which also sets out this same distinction regarding adoptions. Um, Lady Justice King says that there is an important qualitative difference in the degree of interference with Article 8 rights of a child and any non-consenting parent as between so-called stranger adoptions on one hand and step-parent adoptions on the other. The critical difference as between stranger adoptions and step-parent adoptions was summed up by Lord Justice McFarlane, as was, obviously, in the case of Rupee, where he said that a stranger adoption is only justified when nothing else will do, whereas step-parent adoption involves a lower degree of interference and may be more readily justified. It follows that the test in a step-parent adoption is therefore lower. It is not an order of last resort, and the nothing else will do test, as in Rupee, is not the correct test. The fact that the interference of a step-parent adoption is less extreme may render adoption proportionate in a case where the proposed adopter is a step-parent in circumstances where it may not be, where the applicant is a stranger. So the court upholds the adoption order as made by the circuit judge and says that L will be adopted into the mother and the stepfather's relationship and will cease to have any legal ties to his biological father who he doesn't want to see. So it's an interesting one for me, I think, because it's quite a distinct exercise of the court's powers here. You know, this little boy has said, I'd rather that this other man was my dad. And the court say, okay, let's do that then. 
obviously it's right to say it's less of an interference than it would be if he was being adopted by strangers. But for me, there's a hint of the kind of eugenicist argument here that L doesn't get on with his father and therefore he gets a different one. I think is quite a difficult moral stance to justify, particularly when the only tie he has to his biological father now, or would have been the biology and the law of it. And now that has been severed. And the only tie that remains is the fact that biologically this man is his father, but he's not legally recognized as his father. And in fact, another man is now legally recognized as his father. So I don't, I haven't quite decided, despite having read this case some days ago, how it makes me feel. Um, I think it's a real example of the powers of the courts in legalizing and legitimizing relationships that are seen as beneficial in terms of welfare for children. But it also is quite a significant interference, regardless of what Lady Justice Kingray correctly says in relation to the jurisprudence around this case. It is still quite a large interference in my book to sever completely the legal ties to a biological father, simply because the relationship with the stepfather is better or more stable. What do you think? Well, first of all, can I say the description of a somewhat chaotic and hedonistic lifestyle is fantastic and I want it as my new Twitter bio. Um, but in terms of the case itself, you're right, something about it sits uncomfortably with me. We know from the comments of Headley in Riel that the court isn't in the business of social engineering and it's, you know, in, in care proceedings, the view generally taken is that whether or not the parents provide good enough care, not whether other parents could be better parents and preferable parents. So I, I completely understand what you mean about the court effectively saying, well, there's a better option here. And the interference with father's Article 8 rights are really, really quite significant. I agree. Something about it unsettles me. The reality is the order that was being sought probably reflects the position on the ground. So it's not necessarily going to change the status quo in any practical sense. But psychologically, for that father who, through no fault of his own, from what I can tell from your description of this case to me, didn't know he was the father, only found out very late in the day, and that was the reason there was no relationship with the child, it almost seems like mother's deception in hiding that fact from him was eventually something that resulted in the severing of that relationship due to no fault of the father. Of course, father's conduct thereafter, aggressiveness and contact and things like that, obviously that's very serious as well. But one does have to ask, would things have panned out differently if this child had had a relationship with him from day dot? Yeah, I agree. I think that's really interesting. I also was thinking when I was reading it, whether whilst the arguments of course would have been the same and the law is the same, whether if this had been a mother who had abandoned a child and then the father had formed a new relationship with a different woman and the woman was seeking adoption. I'm not one of those people who thinks that, that the family court is particularly biased towards fathers or mothers. I think it really depends on the quality of the care they offer. I don't think it's really about biology ever. But I think there's something quite straightforward in people's minds of severing legal ties with a father that perhaps he wouldn't see with a mother. And I actually haven't found, I did have a look for step-parent adoption cases involving mothers. And there are very few that they're much more likely to be stepfathers than stepmothers that are adopting children so that also kind of sits uncomfortably with me because I think there's this suggestion that obviously like you say he didn't know he was the dad and the fact that he didn't know he was the dad is a luxury that's only afforded to men and that meant that he was unable to build a relationship in the beginning which may have meant that his conduct later would have been better or perhaps worse who knows it's difficult to say but I do think it's quite an extreme decision and anyone who's particularly interested in step-parent and adoption cases should give it a read because it does set out the law really well. But it's also the factual background's quite interesting because the father is there and participating and engaging in proceedings, at least, if not in contact. And the child is very clear that this is what he wants, but he's only 11. You know, he's not in an age where it's determinative completely that he knows exactly what's best for him. And the parents aren't married. Mum and dad aren't married. And we know how much the law loves marriage as gold standard and how much it thinks that that's the mark of stability. So there's quite a few factors in this that I think indicate that it's a departure from the kind of norm that we see, but an interesting one nonetheless. What have you got for me? Well, it's interesting that it's coming off the back of your case because your case is about a child who doesn't want to see their father or have any relationship with them. Whereas my case is the opposite. It's about two children who desperately want some sort of relationship with their father. And the case I've picked is called Z and Z brackets contact in prison. I'll put the citation in the show notes. And it was handed down at the beginning of the month. And it's a judgment from Mr. Justice McDonald. And the reason I picked it is because it concerns the rather emotive 
subject, which no doubt will spark strong opinions amongst members of the public about contact between children and a parent in prison who has been convicted of very, very serious offences. I also think it's the sort of case that could be liable to sensationalist misreporting, which is part of the reason why I picked it so that I could get in and try and provide an accurate narrative, because I can just imagine the Daily Mail headline on this, you know, secret family court directs that paedophile father must have contact with children despite prison's objections, which you know, is nonsense and it doesn't reflect the actual state of play. This is a very lengthy judgment and there's a lot in it which I simply do not have the time to discuss so I'm just going to pick up on some of the most interesting aspects. The facts of this case, so the applicant was the father, respondent mother, both representing themselves and the children who are referred to in the judgment as X and Y are acting by their children's guardian. So for non-family lawyers, I can't remember if I've explained this on a previous episode, but in private law children proceedings, the children are sometimes added as parties and someone called a rule 16.4 guardian appointed in a small category of cases, often where the case has become so complex that the court would benefit from the independent view of a professional. I'm being very, very broad brush about it. There are a number of factors the court takes into account in deciding whether to join the children as parties or appoint a guardian, but just as a brief explainer for anyone who doesn't know what that is. The fourth respondent was a prison governor from an unnamed prison, presumably for confidentiality reasons, and the Secretary of State for Justice was an intervener. So the case concerns the main issue of whether an order for indirect contact between the children and their father who's in prison should be made. The application was made by father, supported by mother and the children's guardian. And it also concerned another subsidiary issue about whether a public body such as a prison can be compelled by the family court to facilitate contact in line with a court order. So X and Y are 16 and 14, and 10 years ago, their father was arrested and convicted of a number of extremely serious sexual offences, including two counts of rape of a child under 13, two counts of assault by penetration of a child under 13. So the offences involved sustained sexual abuse of an 11-year-old little girl who was known to father over a period of around 18 months. So far as these kids were concerned, they left for school one day, came back and their dad was gone. And they were initially told that he was working abroad and various other explanations given to them. But the long and short of it is they hadn't had any contact with him in any shape or form for 10 years. Father was sentenced to 26 years, 20 years imprisonment and a six year license. And he was also made subject to something called a SOPO, a sexual offences prevention order. The sentencing remarks of the judge in the criminal proceedings included the following comment. I begin by making it clear that having conducted the trial and seen you give evidence, I am satisfied that you are a devious, manipulative and determined man. Whenever it suited you, you chose to blame your co-defendant. You show not a shred of remorse and paint yourself as being a victim of a miscarriage of justice. Nothing could be further from the truth. Like many paedophiles, you are quite unprepared to confront your offending. Father had consistently maintained his innocence and made very clear that he was seeking to appeal the conviction in the criminal proceedings. Of course, he clearly hadn't made much progress with that in the past decade. And mother, importantly, also supported his views and throughout the 10 years had maintained quite a high level of contact with him, albeit the children had not. There were care proceedings in 2012 off the back of all of this, which indicated that mother was meeting the children's needs and the court made a final order prohibiting father from having contact with the children. There was a bit of confusion about the terms of the order and its enforceability, but that seemed to be what the judge was getting at. In 2017, so five years later, the local authority conducted an assessment after father made a request to have contact with the children. The assessment recommended that indirect contact take place under the supervision of a third party. The prison, off the back of that, did their own risk assessment, and despite the recommendations of the local authority, the prison refused to permit any contact between father and the children. And there were a few reasons for this, including the fact that the SOPO that father was subject to prohibited him from having any contact 
with any child of the family under 18 without approval of the supervising local authority or further order. The final order that was made in the care proceedings remained in force, so the prison was confused and had tried to get clarity around whether any contact would breach that order. And there was also concern that the prison didn't really have the skills to be the third party monitoring indirect contact for anything that might be improper. And also the fatherhood, of course, continued to deny he'd done anything and he hadn't engaged in any work, any therapeutic work to reduce his risk of offending again. Fast forward and father made a further application for contact in 2020, I believe, which is what these proceedings were about. The Guardian prepared a report which recommended indirect contact should be considered in line with the recommendations of the local authority back in 2017. And in coming to those recommendations, the children's wishes and feelings were obtained by The Guardian. And the children said, X said, look, it's a long time not to see a parent. Legally, he's guilty and I don't know if he's innocent, but it's been difficult for me for him to be taken away from me and I'd like the chance to see him again. And Y said any contact would be great, even letters or phone calls, I'd really like to see him in person. The children were aware he was in prison and that their mum thinks that he's innocent, but both of the children seemed unsure about what to think or what actually happened. The rationale for the Guardian's recommendations were as follows, and I'm going to set them out in full because she seems to have conducted a very, very detailed, thoughtful analysis, which has considered all the risks from all the angles. So the Guardian says the children haven't had any contact with their father since the day of his arrest 10 years ago. They've had no opportunity to say goodbye to him and have no closure at the present time. In light of the position taken by the mother and the father with respect to the father's convictions, there are clearly risks associated with any form of contact between the children and their father. The child and family assessments of 2014 and of 2017 and the Section 37 report of 2012 express concerns regarding the mother's ability to protect the children in light of her views were the father to be the subject of early release. The children appear to have a rather idealized view of their father at present, and may be less aware of the risks he poses, as he and their mother believe he is innocent and therefore imprisoned unjustly, and if innocent, poses no risks to them at all. But within this context, the balance between the risks presented and contact taking place is a very fine one. Against the risks identified, the children are settled and well cared for, and there's no evidence that the mother presents a risk of sexual abuse or inappropriate behaviour. The child and family assessments of 2014, 2017 and the section 37 of 2012 confirmed that mother was acting to safeguard the children and no further action needed to be taken. Each of the children is now much older and better able to understand the reasons the father is in prison. They have some understanding of the offences for which he was convicted and the risk he might try to groom them or sexually abuse them. The local authority recommended indirect contact supported by a third party in 2017. By reason of his incarceration without hope of release until after both children have attained their age of majority, the risk of the father causing the children harm by way of direct physical or sexual assault is reduced. And finally, within this context, given the weight of the children's views and the emotional impact already sustained by them, if supervised appropriately, there may now be a situation in which some form of contact, such as indirect contact, could take place which would protect them from harm, but would allow them to understand and have some form of contact with their father. So this is a guardian who's clearly looked at it from all angles and recognizes how finely balanced a decision it is. Um, she also felt that the children needed some preparatory work before seeing their father for indirect or direct contact, particularly so that they can understand that despite what their parents might be saying, their father may well be guilty, and certainly in the eyes of the court is guilty, and what that might mean for their relationship with him moving forward. The Guardian doesn't say the children are just going to be reintroduced to him like that. She says, look, there will be some, some build-up to any contact taking place. Off the back of those recommendations, the local authority was then directed to file a Section 7 report, which is a report for non-family lawyers that is commissioned by the court to consider whether or not certain arrangements should progress in respect of children. The social worker or the CAFCAS officer makes inquiries and then they make recommendations to the court about how to move forward. So the Section 7 report here recommended no contact until the children turned 18 and could make their own decisions. So in direct opposition to what the Guardian was recommending. And this was based around the concern about mum not accepting the convictions, the kids having doubt about the convictions, and whether if anything did happen to them, whether father did anything to them, they would actually say anything because they don't want to place their father in more trouble. 
2017, the prison also said we don't have the facilities to make this contact happen. So the local authority was also aware of that. The Guardian then filed a further statement maintaining her recommendations and recommending two-way indirect contact. I say her, it could be they. Um, through letters in Easter, summer and at Christmas supervised and a written agreement between the parents about the content of the letters. The local authority, for no real reason, then just changed their mind and agreed with the Guardian. From what I can see from the judgment, there was no particular reason for that about face. The prison probation officer, this is when things start to get complicated, then filed a statement saying, no, sorry, we don't agree with the Guardian's contact proposals. And again, raised the same sorts of concerns that father's convictions were indicated a really wide spectrum of offending and he's not motivated to change. So the risk remains high. The Guardian came back with detailed arrangements for how the contact would progress, including that an organisation run by an independent social worker could supervise the contact and monitor it for any impropriety so that that doesn't fall on the prison. The prison then had a risk management meeting where they considered all the various documents that had been filed and they effectively came back with the same conclusion. They unanimously agreed the panel that there's been no reduction in the risk presented by father to his children. And they described him as a dangerous and predatory man. A few days later, the matter returned to court and the governor of the prison and the head of public protection attended and said, we oppose contact. And if an order is made, we can't confirm at this hearing whether that order will be facilitated in accordance with the prevalent considerations of public protection, prison policy and procedure. So we come to a position where the parents, the children by their guardian and the local authority are all agreed that contact should proceed. However, the prison management have grave concerns about the proposals and their buy-in is needed for the proposals to actually be implemented. In terms of the law, the law around the issue of contact is really straightforward. The children's welfare is the court's paramount consideration. The court has to have regard to the welfare checklist, which is in the Children Act. No order should be made unless to do so would be better than making no order and delay is ordinarily inimical to the children's welfare and any interference in the children's right to family life must be necessary and proportionate. That's all familiar, nothing new there. The second issue is can the court compel a prison governor to effectively comply with the order? The court concluded, and there is lengthy consideration of the various authorities, which I just don't have the time or the inclination to get into on this episode, but effectively the court concluded it doesn't have a power to compel them to do so, but the implementation of any court order is going to be subject to the statutory powers of the Secretary of State for Justice to operate the prison system. The fact the court has made an order will be a consideration for the Secretary of State in exercising their powers and the risk analysis that the court has carried out in making that order. However, how the order is implemented will rest with the Secretary of State, with the prison or the governor. And if they refuse to facilitate contact, then they might open themselves up to a judicial review challenge. So in short, the court can't compel the prison to do anything it says, look, I've made this order. Here are the reasons why this is the risk analysis that I've completed. The prison then considers the judgment, looks at all the factors, decides whether they will facilitate the implementation of the order. And if they say no, sorry, then the parents or the kids could make an application for that decision to be judicially reviewed. So how does the judge apply the law in this case? In terms of the first issue of contact, the judge does find that it's in the children's best interest to make that order. And in doing so, he takes into account the children's very clearly expressed views, the fact that they are older children, they have some understanding of why their dad is in prison, they know what he was convicted for, and both children have sort of a, well, I'd like it if he wasn't guilty, but the court found him guilty. So neither are adamantly saying, no, he absolutely didn't do it, which may have been a cause for concern. They can explain why he presents a risk. And also the contact that is being proposed is obviously very limited. It's only three times a year by letterbox supervised. The judge was also mindful that in a couple of years, these kids are going to be able to see their dad themselves. So it's best to get that introduction underway in a managed way with the benefit of other agencies before they potentially go from having no contact to then having totally unregulated contact when they turn 18. There was also the real emotional harm caused to the children by their dad effectively disappearing from their lives, no contact and then no clear explanation about what had gone on. So this contact being proposed would be a means of dealing with that. And there was also no evidence that the parents, despite the fact that they believed dad is innocent, have tried to engineer covert contact between the children and father. 
so the court says all of that it accepts the concerns of the prison probation officer about father's risk it makes very clear that it accepts that perpetrators with father's offending profile can be deceptive and emotionally manipulative but on balance the judge felt that this extremely cautious approach that was being proposed was appropriate in these circumstances the judge doesn't bring the proceedings to an end because we don't know yet whether the order is actually going to be implemented by the prison. So the judge makes clear, I'm not ending the proceedings now. That's not because I'm trying to pressure the prison in any way, shape or form. But if the prison does refuse, then obviously we're going to have to look at this again. And the final position is we have an order of the court. Prison governor says, OK, we will review contact taking into account this judgment and what you say about risk. We don't know what has happened off the back of this judgment. The governor could refuse and open themselves up to a judicial review claim in the administrative court. I rather suspect that isn't going to be the case because I imagine that there will be respect for the court's risk analysis. So that's Z and Z. Any thoughts, Maddie? Oh, so many thoughts. I mean, first of all, thanks for picking. I think it's really, really interesting. And second, it's so... The point about whether or not the prison will implement it is obviously interesting. And I think I think legally that's that's interesting. I think the more interesting thing for me is the decision about contact and about risk assessment in a situation where their mother doesn't accept that this man is guilty and didn't do these things, which are not, you know, we're not talking about indirect or images or anything like that. We're talking about very, very significant direct physical sexual harm to a child. And he was found guilty of that. In a situation where the mother doesn't accept that, I'm surprised the care proceedings ended the way they did because the mother doesn't accept the risk posed by the father. And I think that would be something that would be considered quite significant in care proceedings. So I'd quite like to see the judgment from that if it's still available. But also the fact that the children were so young when their dad left and are now older and they themselves are saying, obviously it would be nice if he didn't do it. And, uh, you know, I know my mum thinks he didn't do it. To recommend contact in those in that situation where the judgment in the criminal courts was that this man is deceptive manipulative and dangerous I think is is quite unique I mean it's sort of it is in the face of my understanding of risk assessments really so I think that there must be something quite particular about the way these children express their wishes and the way they've been raised that means that the court is compelled to have contact in a case where it's that risky and of course people listening to this are probably thinking what's the harm with a few letters well actually it's about grooming it's about relationships it's about your own ability to protect future children or future family members from sexual abuse it's about your understanding of sexual abuse and what predators look like all of those things are very very risky and in a situation where a 14 and 16 year old are going to be having direct written contact with their father obviously it's indirect contact but it's coming from him directly as it were it's not rephrased or rewritten or just photos it's actual words from him that does seem to me like a very big risk. So I, I I don't know, maybe I'm being, you know, too unfair. And I, I'm glad that the kids got what they wanted. That's obviously really important for them. And I'm glad that it's ended in a way that is positive for them. But it's quite mad, I guess. <laughs> what, what do you think? Yeah, well, the concerns around mother are part of the reason why the judge didn't think it appropriate for mother to supervise the contact herself. You know, the contact is going to be monitored. And if there's anything inappropriate in there, and they've specifically got this independent social worker's organization on board and they will be live to things like grooming in a way that prison officials wouldn't have and, and perhaps it wouldn't have been appropriate for them to supervise so it is very very controlled contact and who knows if it'll move beyond this this may be the best that it gets in the lifetime in these children's minorities but I think we've got to be conscious that in two years for the older child and four years for the other no one's going to be able to stop them if they want to see their dad they will so isn't it better to try and manage the risk now to prepare them for what their father could be, what risk he might pose, so that in a couple of years when there is no court oversight, when there is no local authority oversight, they can protect themselves? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that but that also comes back to my point about mum, really, because if these children have been raised in an environment where she doesn't accept that this happened and she's not able to accept that he poses a risk they're already in quite a vulnerable position, I would imagine, because their views and understanding of the risk that people pose and dangerousness of that are diminished. So that's why I'm quite interested in, in the care proceedings aspect of it. All the evidence that you've outlined is that she's very capable of caring for the children, but it just does strike me as quite dangerous to be raised by someone who doesn't accept that this man has done these things and therefore can't possibly be a predator and therefore 
doesn't know what predators look like or, or is being manipulated to quite a significant extent by a predator and there are children in her care not necessarily like you say it's not about the direct risk to them it, it's about their understanding in future for their own children and the way they raise their own families about sexual risk I, you know maybe I'll read the case in full and see if I can get a better understanding but I think it is a really interesting one and I think you're right that all the possible safeguards that could be come up with have been come up with in the sense that this contact is probably not even going to mention why dad's in prison or anything about that it's probably going to be very straightforward hi how are you how's school that sort of, that sort of thing so obviously the risk is managed if it's supervised in that way but I'm more yeah, I'm sort of more concerned about the underlying themes of risk really to the children but maybe I'm being a bit unfair on mum. I think it also would have been different if for instance it transpired that the children had been the victims of father's sexual abuse if in the previous care proceedings mum had maintained that position that he hasn't done anything and the children had been at harm then obviously the court would have taken a very different view but of course mother's saying I don't think he's done it but equally I agree that I will not let the children have any form of contact whatsoever with him so despite the fact that she maintained the position that she did she never resisted the fact that the children are not to have any contact with father so even though psychologically she has one particular view practically speaking that didn't affect the arrangements in respect to the children but you're right it's a very tricky one and it's one that you really don't want to get wrong in case anything happens in the future yeah absolutely and I'm sure I'm, I'm hoping and I'm sure that it will be handled very sensitively and properly and I'm happy as I say for the children that they get to restart a relationship with their dad which is of course extremely important as we always say on this show you know things like identity and background and where you come from are so pivotal vital for children's development so it's absolutely right that they should have that knowledge I think if it was me I think I might even be slightly more concerned about doing more direct work with their future understanding of risk rather than specifically about their dad but I think you know that's not my job thank god (laughs) what are your book talk podcast recommendations this week mine this week is not a book or a talk or a podcast it is an initiative and it is called All Rise. You've probably seen it on Twitter. It was created by some members of the inaugural Bar Council Leadership Programme, which I actually was a facilitator on for the last nine months from September 2020 to June 2021. And it's an amazing programme, the Bar Council Leadership Programme. It's the first year it's run. It was all remote and it was about building inclusive leadership and inclusive culture at the bar, which as we all know is an absolutely gargantuan task. And the delegates on that programme are all barristers of quite high seniority who were split into groups, uh, into four groups and had a different task to address different things. So one of them had career breaks, one of them had um, diversity and and inclusivity, other things like that. Big sort of big ticket issues at the bar that, that need addressing. And All Rise came about as a result of one of those groups who were tasked with looking at workplace culture and how to improve workplace culture. And we are aware, both Malka and I personally and professionally are aware that bullying at the bar happens and is real and happens a lot. And All Rise is a project inviting the bar to essentially stand up against any form of bullying as and when they see it. So if you're in court or you're in chambers or you're out at an event or a function and you see someone behaving inappropriately to someone else, then you are making a commitment when you sign up to All Rise to call that behaviour out. And I think it's a really, really important initiative because barristers are very good at having opinions about things, raising their voices, stamping their feet, having a fight. And I think it's time that we put that confidence and that skill to a really good use by protecting people who can't necessarily do that for themselves, particularly younger members of the bar, pupils, legal assistants, anyone who's involved in the system who's um, junior or has less confidence. And I would recommend that everyone follow them on Twitter. It's at all rise the bar one, I think. Um, And what they do is they have a little, they have a pin badge that has a collar and ties on it and the words all rise and you can buy the pin badge and put it on your suit or your suitcase or your bag for court or whatever. And in displaying that badge, you're making a commitment to call out bullying as and when you see it. And I think it's really important to have that at court and remember that commitment because I've seen, certainly seen members of the bar experience difficult um, behaviour and abuse, both from clients and judges at court unfortunately it does happen that's not a criticism of the judiciary at all people are overworked it happens but if we all pull together to try and make sure that someone is called out as soon as possible about that behavior I think it can really really start to make a difference and change the culture of of the bar so that's my recommendation for this week is everyone go and follow them on twitter get a badge and make that commitment 
Mine ties in very nicely with yours. Uh, I didn't know that you were going to recommend All Rise, but I am organizing a series with women in family law um, with my friends, Clarissa Wigadier, who's at Four Paper Buildings and Charlotte Hughes at East Anglian Chambers. And we're running a series last Wednesday of every month called Welfare Wednesdays. And it's looking at exploring what we think are the big issues affecting our collective mental health in the legal profession and the next event is on the 30th of June at 8pm via Zoom and it's on bullying and harassment in the legal profession and we do have a speaker from All Rise, we're having Lydia Pemberton from 3PB speak as well as Sam Mercer who is the head of inclusion and diversity I might have butchered her title from the Bar Council and we've also set up an anonymous submission form ahead of the event because we're very conscious that lots of people who have experienced bullying and harassment will not necessarily want to put their names to their experiences for fear of that affecting their career, for fear of backlash, whatever it might be. But we do want to find out what the extent of the problem is. So we've set up the anonymous submission form for people to share experiences and questions. You don't need to set up a Google account or anything to be able to do that. We don't get any details from you. So please do fill that in ahead of the event and join us at eight o'clock on Wednesday. I'll put the event bright link. It's free for all and it's open to not just members of women in family law. And the second recommendation I have, which I have been raving about on Twitter, is a book called Careless, which is by Kirsty Capes. Anyone who knows me knows that I very rarely read nonfiction because why would I go home after a whole day of reading case files about reality and then go home and read more stuff about the real world when actually I just want to immerse myself in fiction. And this is one of my top books of this year so far. It is written by a care experienced person themselves. So Kirsty Capes was in long-term foster care herself and it's about a young person who is in long-term foster care who finds herself pregnant and the book is about her navigating that as well as exploring her sense of self and her sense of belonging being a child in care and the relationship between her own experiences of being parented with the prospect of being a parent and we've spoken often on the podcast about how we become detached and disconnected from the children who are at the center of our cases. And we've also talked about whether we really appreciate the experiences of children in care when we say things flippantly like the children are thriving in foster care in court or that it is much better for them to be in foster care than to remain with their birth family. You know, we say things like that all the time, but do we really appreciate the experiences of children in care? I think Maddie has said before that the care system is awful. We know that it's awful. The outcomes for care leavers is not great. So I loved this novel for bringing home to me some of the reasons why I'm even in this job, why it matters to me, and to remind myself that the cases have children at the heart of them that I should be thinking about all the time rather than jumping from case to case becoming disillusioned and just dealing with administrative stuff but not really dealing with the impact of how every decision affects the child at the center of it and I want to read an extract from an essay which is at the end of the book which is by Kirsty Capes on motherhood because I think it's beautiful um, and even if you don't read the whole book just read the essay at least at the very end by my teenage years, I had talked myself into a distinctive feeling of otherness, not only because of the fact that I was in care, something which I tried to hide, but because, in my opinion, I was a girl who did not have the privilege of what seemed to me to be something essential, that intangible and sacred bond shared between a daughter and her biological mother. I envied it. I mocked it. I felt that I was lacking something that was fundamental to a safe and steady course through the treacherous waters of adolescence and life. But I also felt some kind of liberation. I wasn't required to care about others because nobody cared about me. I acknowledge that this is an extremely damaging and self-centered perspective to have. In my defense, and in what I think is the most legitimate defense of all, I was a teenage girl growing up in the suburbs, but despite my affected detachment from what I perceived as the unbreakable bond of biological nuclear familial love, I myself was so very, very desperate to be loved. Beautiful essay, beautiful book. Please do read it. And final segment, Tweet of the Week, Maddie. Yes, um, just to add, I, I really do want to read that book. So maybe you can lend it to me when you're finished. My Tweet of the Week is from Philip Marshall QC. 
at PJM1KBW on Twitter. And he says, quotation, Sunday Homework Club makes it sound like such jolly japes. The reality is I deeply regret I have spent more Saturdays and or Sundays working over the past 32 years than I would have ever wished at great cost to family, friendships, well-being, and even my health. Hashtag just saying. And that was a very popular tweet that resulted in lots and lots of conversations, lots of retweets, lots of people chiming in with their views about weekend working, evening working for barristers. Now, I'm aware that we're having this conversation while Malvika and I are recording our family law podcast on a Saturday. So bear in mind that anything we say is probably nonsense. But I think this is a conversation that needs to keep happening. And I'm very grateful to Philip Marshall QC for raising it and continuing to discuss it. Obviously, barristers are self-employed and we have the benefit of managing our own time, managing our own diaries. And that means that we can work or not work whenever we feel is appropriate for us. But that also means that we're sometimes in a situation where the only time available to us is weekends and evenings. So, for example, if papers come in on a Friday for a case on Monday, you know you're going to have to work over the weekend. If you finish a long trial and start a new one on the Monday, you know you're going to have to work over the weekend. If you've got papers late one day, you know you're going to be working in the evening. So some of it is by choice and some of it is by situation. And that needs to change, I think. There needs to be some consideration, particularly for those at the family and crime bar about how much time it's reasonable for people to need to prep cases because I know there are various other areas of the bar I think property and tax and employment just to name a few that I've spoken to where they have rules about when papers have to be received papers have to come in some days before the case and if they don't then that's a matter for the solicitor but they're not going to get the same level of work that they should expect that's a very good rule to have it's not a rule that would work in family courts or criminal courts because we just don't have the information um, things like applications for interim care orders are urgent they come in on an urgent basis and they often involve hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading and the outcomes are very very significant in terms of whether a child is going to remain with their parents or not while proceedings are ongoing and that's often the first decision that's made and those decisions have to be made with almost no warning so it does mean for lots of reasons that the family bar specifically is not able to say that it's never going to work on weekends and that we can make a commitment to never work on weekends. And I think that needs to be factored in, but I certainly think there's more that can be done to address why that is and whether there's anything that realistically can be done, particularly about the Friday night thing, because ICOs often don't come in on a Friday. They'll come in before a Friday to make sure they're done before the weekend. And so there are often ways to prevent that and papers coming late and things being late are understandable problems everyone's busy solicitors no more um no less than us of course so there's lots of tensions to deal with weekend working but for me I think it's something that you kind of have to accept as being a barrister and part and parcel of the job and part and parcel of that job is also a huge amount of flexibility in the daytime you can go to the gym in the middle of the day you can go for lunch if you want to you can you know clock off early if you feel like it if you're willing to work on weekends and I think that's a conversation that needs to be had is about whether it's because working on weekends is blanket bad or whether it's because working on weekends is better than working all day every day in the week until 8pm. So an interesting one and I, I'm very grateful to as I said Philip Marshall QC for raising it and I think it's very good that people at the senior end of the bar are having these conversations because it undoubtedly disadvantages juniors more than seniors but an interesting conversation to be had. Yeah I agree with you that it affects juniors disproportionately because juniors in particular at the start of their career aren't going to feel comfortable saying to clerks or to solicitors sorry I don't want to work this weekend so can we please just leave Monday clear or I need to have sufficient notice before I can deal with anything on Monday so I can prep before the weekend no one's going to do that as a junior because we don't really feel like we have the authority to I say no one I actually don't think my clerks would have much difficulty with it if I said you know I'm feeling quite overwhelmed and I don't really want to work on the weekend but there's generally an expectation that you put up and shut up at the bar Um, and then as you get older you can start to put in place boundaries for what you are and are not willing to do but I agree with you that there are so many elements of practicing as a self-employed barrister that really suit me that I almost feel like I don't mind working on the weekend as the payoff there are aspects of being a self-employed barrister that really suit my mental health my anxiety my depression because they're you know I, I could deal with something early in the morning finish it off within a couple of hours and if I'm not feeling great I can take the rest of the day off and work in the evening because I find I work more productively in the evening than in the middle of the afternoon and those things really really do help me so I don't mind that balance I think the difficulty is often we're working all day all evening and the weekend as well and that's where it becomes problematic and especially as we're coming out of the pandemic the backlog of cases is just 
insane. The number of last minute listings, the number of chaotic listings. I've had so many matters that have just come out of nowhere with no notice to the solicitors. I've had a hearing listed with about an hour's notice on a private law directions matter, which is really unusual. It's not like a care proceedings matter where something really urgent has happened. And it's just becoming the norm that you deal with it. And that's not okay. So I agree with you that weekend working is part of the job, but that needs to be offset against what we're doing over the rest of the week. It, it's not something that's sustainable for us to be working 24-7, which is, we're getting close to that, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's it's not a question of you work every evening and then you work weekends and that's the job. That's not at all right and that shouldn't be how it is. It's, it's more that are you working weekends because there's time in the week that you have free or and the way you manage your time is that or is it that the job is forcing you to work on weekends in which case that's obviously something that needs to be discussed okay what's your tweet of the week my tweet of the week is from michelle healy qc at rummy bar and she writes speaking to a law student about their future plans they want to be a barrister i asked if they'd considered birmingham student genuinely surprised that there are chambers outside of london sigh maddie knows i'm about to get on my high horse now about the regional bar i am such an evangelist for practicing in the regions i just don't understand why anyone would practice in london now that i've experienced both sides of the coin i was a pupil in london i went to university in london so i've had a great deal of time spent in london but i'm from the midlands and everyone will know I'm very open about this on Twitter and on my various blogs and things that I had a very serious mental health crisis during my pupillage year. And coming out of that, I had a complete reassessment of what makes me happy, what I want out of my career and out of my life. And part of that was reluctantly coming to the conclusion that I'm not very happy in London. I'd spent enough time there to come to that conclusion. But in the back of my mind, I'd always had it drilled into me that the high-flying lawyers are in London. The best work is in London. And if you leave London, you're just going to be in some random provincial chambers that isn't going to give you the same opportunities as being in London. I'm happy to say I'm a total convert, and that is complete and utter rubbish. I was very lucky when I left pupillage. I applied for chambers only in the Midlands. I decided I wanted to come back to the Midlands, and I applied for third, sixth, and tenancy, and I was very lucky to get tenancy at my current chambers in Birmingham and it's the best decision I've ever made there are so many pros to practicing in the regions I mean I don't think Maddie will disagree with me the people are just nicer outside London I don't think that's controversial my friend who's a criminal barrister was in court in the Midlands a few days ago and she came to visit me and she just said everyone's so much nicer outside the M25 the magistrates actually smiled at me today that man in the pub is so friendly genuinely everyone is nicer outside London I can say that having been living in London and the Midlands but also little things like being able to drive around rather than having to take an hour train from East London to West London to get to court travel is a huge part of the job and I think mental health wise it's had a really big impact that I'm able to manage my travel in a way that doesn't make me anxious because I think it would have made me really anxious in the middle of the pandemic to be getting on the tube whereas when the pandemic struck, I was so happy to be in the fresh air, in the countryside, able to drive around and safeguard myself. And also in non-pandemic times, it's just so much nicer to be able to drive around and take the tube everywhere. And I'm not going to be flat sharing until I'm 45. I'll be able to buy a house when my friends in London can probably buy a parking space in Hackney. I just think there are so many benefits. And I also think, anecdotally, that my quality of work has improved being outside London. I accept that I've only ever been a pupil in London, but I have lots of friends who are in London. And when I talk to them about the sorts of things that they're working on, it seems like I've been given a lot of responsibility and a lot more complex cases at my level of seniority, very, very junior, which I don't think I would have gotten anywhere near if I was still in London. You know, I still obviously do the run of the mill non-moles and things like that. But the opportunities to do really, really complex fact finds and multi-day trials, which is head and shoulders above what a lot of my friends are doing in London. So if you haven't already, explore practicing outside London, because I honestly could not give you one thing that I miss about being in London. Yeah, Malka and I have talked about this between us on multiple occasions, and we do a lot of work with wannabe barristers. And this is something that we always talk about is deciding where you want to practice is a really important element of the job and I'm from Brighton so for me London was always 40 minutes on a train and was easier and I think I very much came from a culture educationally that London was the gold standard and there was no point 
if you worked outside of London, you'd failed and you couldn't hack London. That was the culture that I, I came from. And it takes a long time to shake off that culture, like that tweet highlights. You know, people aren't being told enough about the quality of work, the value of work, and the fact that just because it's not London, how could there possibly be any less or better work outside of London? London doesn't have less or better interesting families. You know, families are everywhere. That's the fun thing about family law is you get interesting, dynamic, complex cases across the country, without a doubt. There's a high court division in Birmingham. There's big cases sit in Birmingham all the time. So it's certainly something to think about if you're a student or want to be barrister listening to this, that London does not mark the beginning and end of the world. And as much as I do live in London, do practice in London, I can't fault anything that Malvika said about practicing outside of London. And London is difficult and it will chew you up and spit you out if you let it, I think. So it's certainly something to consider when making a move. And people also talk a lot about money and finances and the cost of becoming a barrister, which is something Malvika and I could go into at length, but it is an absolute con, the amount of money that people spend on becoming barristers and it shouldn't happen, of course, but it's also a lot cheaper to not do your bar course in London. I think it's about seven grand or it was when I did it, so that's a bit out of date, anecdotal data, but I think it was about £7,000 cheaper for me to have done the bar course in Nottingham or Manchester than it was in London. Sadly, there used to be a centre in Guildford, but it shut down, so I had no choice but to come to London because it was nearest to where I was from. But anyone who has the opportunity, who went to university in Nottingham, Birmingham, Manchester, and has the opportunity to do their bar course outside of London should take that opportunity because it's cheaper and the course is the same no matter where you do it. So something to really think about if you're struggling with finance as well is, is look at regional opportunities because they're just as good and they do tend to be a lot cheaper than trying to source housing and living in London for a year, which is already extortionate regardless of whether you're a student or not. Yeah, fully agree. I went to university in London, but then I did the bar course in Nottingham because I'm from Leicester. So I just commuted every day and it is certainly at the time I did it, which was a year after you, um, it was about 7K difference. For the exact same course and in fact anecdotally Nottingham has very very good reviews they have their own legal advice center lots of pro bono opportunities I know that we've moaned before about the bar course have we moaned before about the bar course on this podcast I'm sure we have we have between the two of us but maybe not on this podcast but we could moan about it for a bit now why not maybe yeah neither of us particularly think that the bar course is at a standard that it should be I know there's been a lot of change in terms of the delivery of the bar course it's not even called the bbtc anymore is it? it's called the btc but certainly when we were doing it i think across the board everyone felt that the bar course didn't really add much at all and it was just a lot of money to spend for not getting very much out of it and i can't remember much of what i did on the bar course and and so much of it was just irrelevant to my practice as a family lawyer we just had to rote learn civil litigation and criminal litigation never to be used ever again. Professional ethics was very, very prescriptive in the way that it was graded when in reality, there are lots of different ways that you would respond to an ethical dilemma. And yeah, we we can't possibly get into all the issues that we have with the bar course, but it really doesn't matter where you do it. So if you can afford to get into the regions for it, do. Though I do know that the Inns of Court have now started their ICCA, which is slightly different from the traditional bar providers. So maybe there are now stronger options in London but I don't know I haven't looked into it enough so do your research see where you can save money because it's a long expensive journey to becoming a barrister anyway we may have single-handedly contributed to a decline in next year's pupillage applications to all the London chambers definitely I think also I've been seeing a lot of tweets I don't know if you've seen these tweets from students about the importance of the bar course because it's the first time that they've had the opportunity to do things like mooting or um, pro bono opportunities or support with their applications I think that's an argument for allowing people an opportunity to learn specifically about the bar and have a year of of learning. It's not an argument for how much it costs and for the actual benefit of it in in your practice, because I think people only need those kind of experiences because they're struggling to get pupillage. So it feeds into the pupillage argument more than it does the actual practice and quality of the advocate argument, because everyone knows that pupils aren't necessarily picked because of the quality of their work obviously all of them are very talented but it's not that's not necessarily how the world works as we know from our pupillage episode so whilst I sympathize with students who say I want to do the BPTC and I want it to remain because I need that year to be able to commit to legal experience you know we need to question why we're creating a culture that says that students need a whole year to dedicate their all their free time to mooting and pro bono and legal advice opportunities and experiences when actually that's going to cost them more money and more health probably in the long term. So whilst I sympathise with that view, I think it's somewhat simplistic in terms of the problems of training and recruiting barristers. I don't think we need the BPTC. 
and I would not be sorry to see it go. I would say that very happily, I would say that to anyone, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be sorry to see it go. And I think there's no real argument for maintaining it at this stage. And the argument that you should have pupillage before you do it, again, feeds into those same issues and actually is very elitist and I wouldn't support that for a moment. But it's kind of the only argument that makes sense in terms of this is only useful if you're going to be a pupil. This is the only reason you do this course is because you're going to be a pupil. So if you know you're going to be a pupil, then it's worth doing the course. You can do anything else, legal experience and stuff without needing to do it. So I think it's it's a really complex issue. But for me, I can't think of any actual decent reason for maintaining the BPTC. There are lots of other ways to get that, get those benefits and a lot worse ways to get those disadvantages. So I think scrap the BPTC is my new, is my new campaign for the year. Yeah, I think that's not emphasised enough. If you do something like an LLM, like a proper master's somewhere versus the BPTC, that is going to help you so much more in the future in terms of opportunities than doing just the BPTC. If you're not going to be a pupil, like we've talked about the stats on becoming a pupil and how bleak they are, and that the vast majority of applicants are just not going to get pupillage. But if they have done the BPTC, it will be worth nothing. What other job would need you to do the BPTC? There are no real transferable skills out of the BPTC. I keep calling it the BPTC. I know it's not called the BPTC anymore, but it is so tailored to being a barrister that if you then decide, actually, I'm not, I'm you know, struggling with getting people, I want to go do something else, fine. But that was a waste of a year, really. You would have been better off doing a master's and something else. So I probably would join your Scrap the BPTC campaign I can't remember a single thing that I learned on the BPTC that was helpful to me no and it's a lot of drafting and opinion writing in very prescriptive formats that you then just do differently when you're a pupil you just adopt your chamber style or the style that you're taught as a pupil because you can't uniformly teach drafting that's the whole point of one of the skills that you need to be a lawyer is that you need to know how to write and advocate on paper and that's not necessarily something that you can teach by formats and lines and all that nonsense so scrap the BPTC I think we're done and again we've gone so far over time but thank you so much everyone for listening to episode eight of professionally embarrassing we are going to take a break after episode 10 because i think we deserve it because alongside this we have our side hustle of being barristers so we're going to give ourselves a little bit of a break after 10 episodes have a summer holiday and then come back in the autumn refreshed renewed perky ready to discuss family law ready with more issues for the family bar maybe we'll give local authorities a break next season who knows probably not anyway thanks everyone for joining us see you next time thanks bye